Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. I am excited to be with you tonight. As was already said, my name is Toby England, and uh, I attend Lancaster Baptist Church. Dr. Paul Chapel worked there at West Coast Baptist College. We've had a host of people from Liberty Baptist Church go through over the years, and some of them work here on staff, and others we know and love. And uh, a lot of you know some of those young people. Maybe they're your kids or friends, and uh, it's been a privilege. I'm delighted to be here tonight. As your pastor said, he is a good friend, and I uh, love what God has done here over the years and excited to see where you guys are. Looks like you're tearing the place apart and putting it back together. I walked through a building th this evening and there was a, a new room, I understand. It was kind of being reconverted and expanded and there's a need to uh, make room for what God's doing here. And that's exciting. Be glad you're in a place like that because uh, not every place is. And uh, be glad you got some music like we have and uh, the scripture that we're about to open. It's just a blessing to be a Christian. I'm really excited for the next couple of nights. We're here tonight and then two more Tuesday nights, the next two Tuesday nights, and we're taking some time to talk about apologetics. Apologetics isn't learning to say you're sorry better. That's not what apologetics is. Uh, it's a defense. It's uh, ability to defend a body of belief. And as Christians, we have a body of belief. What I found a lot of times is where we go to church or Sunday school or we talk to people that help us maybe grow in our faith, and a lot of times we're told what to believe, but it's not often we're told why to believe. And that's apologetics. And I'm glad that you're in a place that has a pastor and an emphasis that recognizes that Scripture is the answer. Christianity is true. And as a result, it doesn't matter what questions society or relatives or neighbors or bosses or whoever's in your life that wants to challenge and wants to prod and wants to uh, maybe throw some doubt in, no matter who that is, there's an answer that we can give as a Christian. Uh, have your Bible handy. We're going to go to a couple passages tonight, but I want to start with a couple worldview questions. In fact, tonight we're talking about the need for apologetics and arguments for God. Next Tuesday we'll be talking about the reliability of Scripture, historical, archaeological, geographical, and textual. How do we know that the Bible is reliable and true? Don't miss next Tuesday night and then our last night. If there's somebody that you know that's hostile toward their toward your faith. I know you love them. I do too. Bring them to church. Uh, bring them Sunday too, but bring them on these Tuesday nights, and I'd love to have a conversation with them, and what they're going to hear is the evidence on that last Tuesday nights for the historical Jesus and the bodily resurrection of Christ from the grave. And you know, that's really where it's at for you and me as a Christian. Now, everybody has a worldview. All of us have a way that we interpret the world, but really at the baseline, the need for a Christian worldview has never been greater than it is right now. And a worldview is the way you answer several fundamental questions in life. And here's a couple of the questions that every worldview needs to answer. Where did I come from? This is a question of origin. Oh, where did I come from? We need to answer, who am I? This is a question of identity. We need to answer the question, 
of meaning. What is my purpose in life? How should I live? The morality and then our destiny. What happens when I die? This is your worldview. Now, you as a Christian, you know you have answers to these questions and people without Christ in the world that do not. And our mission and our privilege is to share the answers to these questions. But how many recognize that even people that don't have Jesus as their cornerstone, even people that don't have the Bible as their foundation, they're looking to influence, they're looking to convince others in society of their worldview? Worldviews like glasses. It's something that you look through and interprets how you see the world. And as a follower of Christ, as a disciple, as a Christian, I need to have a biblical worldview. And in order to have a biblical worldview, we must go to Scripture and we must see the foundation for what we believe. I want to begin tonight in John chapter 3 and verse number 16, because this really is an encapsulation of a Christian worldview. John chapter 3 and verse 16, you're familiar, I suppose, with the passage. Scripture tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Aren't you glad that's the message we get to share? We don't, our message isn't, hey, your automobile insurance is about to inspire your warranty, you need to re-up. Our message isn't something primarily about a political party or about some message in business. This is eternal truth. This is the Son of God who gave His life for my sin and for yours and for that of every person in the world. And we get to share that message. We get to share that gospel. So we as Christians know what our message is, I think, a lot of times. We know what the gospel is. We know what it is we believe, but let's talk about the why. I want to answer three questions tonight, and the first question I want to answer is, what if I'm not sure? What if I'm not sure? What do I do if I am experiencing doubt as a Christian? Sometimes we wrestle with this as a Christian. Sometimes we don't realize that doubt is something that is experienced by followers of Christ. After three, over three years of ministry, after day in and day out that Jesus spent with his disciples, he was taken up to Jerusalem, he was tried in a, a, a false a facade of a trial, he was nailed to the cross, he said to John uh, to take care of his mother, he said be, uh, he gave up the ghost and he died on that cross for your sin and for mine. They took him off that cross because of the, the Sabbath day approaching, the holy day, and they buried him. They wrapped him in swaddling clothes as he came into the world. They laid him in a grave. And three days later, he rose again. Well, he rose again, and the Bible tells us in Acts 1, for 40 days, he interacted with his disciples. He met with them. They met with him on the road to Emmaus. He appeared one time to them in the upper room. Remember that? And they were scared, and he ate bread and water, drank water, and he showed up to Thomas. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe. He showed up to Thomas, and Jesus said, hey, here I am. You can touch me. You can put your finger in the hole in my hand. You can put your hand in the side where the spear pierced me on the cross. Thomas, I'm really here. Remember all that? For 40 days, Acts said that Jesus interacted with his disciples and taught them the things of the kingdom of God. At the end of that time, Matthew chapter 28 records that Jesus is about to ascend up into heaven. You know this passage because it's the Great Commission. 
It's where Jesus is about to tell his followers to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. If you want to join me, if you have a Bible with you tonight, join me in Matthew chapter number 28, because right before that famous passage, there's one of the most puzzling verses to me in all the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28, you'll see here in verse number 17, a short, puzzling verse. The Bible says in verse number 17 of Matthew 28, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Let me ask you a question. Who is they? In verse 17. It's the disciples, right? These are the apostles, the disciples. This is uh, Peter and James and John and uh, the rest. These are the, the followers of Christ. These are the disciples of Jesus Christ. That's who they are. The Bible says that they saw him. Who's him? That's Jesus. Okay. How do they see Jesus? Well, he rose from the dead, right? They saw him, they saw him tried, crucified, buried, rose from the dead, they'd interacted with him, they'd heard him, they'd eaten with him, they'd had 40 days of work. This is Jesus standing right there. And what was the response of the disciples? Well, the first was they worshiped, as is appropriate, but some doubted. Isn't that amazing? They're standing right there. Put yourself there for a moment. Put yourself on that hill when he's about to give the, the, the last command to the church uh, to go and to preach the gospel. He's about to ascend up into heaven, and, and he, won't, he won't drink from uh, the, the vine again until he comes back in the, the return of Christ, the rapture, the second coming. He's about to ascend up. The disciples are standing there looking at him, and some of the disciples are doubting. Now, here's why I pull this out, because what I know from my experience and what I know from Scripture is that there are times that Christians may experience some doubt. And I say that because a lot of times we may feel like we have to, we have to put on the I don't ever doubt face when we walk into church. Sometimes we might feel like we've got to look, at, look like the guy that never has questions, the person that never has any doubt at all. And, and sometimes we have doubt that creeps into our life, and we wonder, what do I do? What do I do with the doubt? Sometimes people will say, well, you take the doubt and you, you get rid of the doubt. However you need to get rid of it, you just get rid of the doubt. And this is something that I went through as a young person. My dad was an atheist who grew up outside of church. He got saved in his early 20s, went to Bible college, got married, left college, and went into the ministry. When he was the pastor of, of Lakeview Baptist Church for most of my life in Orr, Minnesota. So here I am, I'm the preacher's kid. Preacher's kids, they're a little bit different, right? They, uh, they, they sometimes, uh, uh, they know where all the, what's in all the closets in the church, and they go to church every day of the week, and we vacuum, and it was just, I was always in church. I, I just literally lived in church. It's just what, what it was like growing up. And I got saved at a young age. I got saved as a young child. I heard the gospel, and I responded to the gospel. And then about 13 or 14 years uh, of age, I started to have some questions. I started to wonder, how can smart people come to different conclusions than I do? Do you realize there's probably somebody in the world that's even smarter than you are that doesn't believe like you believe? How, how is that possible? 
I wondered about, I know that we say that the Bible's the word of God, but how do I know that it's the word of God? We, we, we pray to God, but how do I know that God exists? I began, to, I began to wrestle with some of these questions and with some of these doubts. And, and for a while, I just tried to run from them. I just tried to shut them down. Uh, if this pulpit right here represented doubt, what I would do is I would just run away from it. But it was like a bad dream. It was like, some, like you ever see those skits where somebody has like a, a snake on the end of an invisible string and it's like tied to their leg and they're running and it keeps chasing them. That's what I felt like with a doubt. I, I couldn't get rid of it. What I found is that the strongest faith isn't in the opposite direction of that doubt. It's on the other side of that doubt. You've got to go through it. You've got to walk through it. And here's what I know, that Christ's disciples experience doubt. I, we know this. We know that Moses experienced doubt. We know that David experienced doubt. We know that Abraham experienced doubt. We know that Peter experienced doubt. And here's the good news. God was able to use all of them mightily. God isn't looking for perfect people to use. If that's what he was looking for, none of us would qualify. So when we come to the cross, when we come to scripture, when we come to our faith, there's a level of authenticity. There's a level of rawness. Sometimes we go through a time of trial and there's a loss and we wonder why God. Sometimes we experience something we don't understand. We're, I, I don't know. I, I, we feel like the, the man that prayed, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And we need to know that for a Christian, doubt is sometimes experienced and it can be overcome. It's not the destiny. It's not the end of your faith. It doesn't mean you're not a child of God. It means that it's something you've got to work through. And scripture has the answer. So when we come to doubt in our life, we have to recognize that that's something that scripture can help us deal with. Now, I want to convince you here why this is an important area for us to study. So we want to ask the question tonight, why do we study apologetics? Why is this important? And it's important for several reasons, but let me say first that it's important because it's only reasonable that we have a reason for what we believe. We should study apologetics because it's reasonable. If someone were to ask you, why do you believe, you should have an answer. Uh, if, your, if your eternity depends on this, this belief that we have as Christians, it's only reasonable that we have a reason. See, Christianity is not a fairy tale. It's not a cultural identity. It's not something that you just choose because it resonates with you. That there's a reason for what we believe. And in every other area of life, we expect somebody to have a reason, right? You ever talk to somebody that has a crazy idea? Maybe some kind of conspiracy theorist or some kind of wacky idea or somebody believes something like, oh my goodness, tell me why. Why do you believe? Have you ever asked somebody, why do you believe that? And they're like, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes people will tell me, I don't think we even need to do apologetics as Christians. I don't think we do. I don't think you need a reason for what you believe. I always ask them, really, tell me why. Why don't you think you need a reason? It's a trap. <laughs> because if they give me a reason for why they don't think you need a reason, what they're showing is they don't really believe it. You need a reason for what you believe. Number one, reason demands it. You realize that the impact of your faith is the most important thing in life? There's a lot of things that I like to do outdoors. I like to, I like to hike. I like to I, I run some. I like to get outside and be active. There's also some things that I am particularly unskilled in. Anybody in the room have something you're just you're particularly unskilled in? 
There's actually a lot. <laughs> There's a whole lot of things that I can't do well. But one of them that I've never done, uh, I've, I've tried maybe once or twice, I know I couldn't do this, I can't skateboard. I've never really worked on skateboarding. Some of you may be amazing skateboarders, and I'm impressed. I just tell you, I think you're cool, and I'm impressed, okay? I can't skateboard. But let's, just, let's say that I decide that I'm going to skateboard. So I go down to Vans, I know where to get uh, a board, so I go down to Vans and I get, get some gear and I get the right shoes and I get a skateboard and I find some kind of park somewhere and I find this half pipe and I say, famous last words, watch this. Right? And, I, I, and I get that skateboard up there and I get on, and watch this, and I just push myself over that edge. If I can't skateboard, I can't even stand on a skateboard and all of a sudden I'm getting on the top of a, a half pipe or something, you know what's going to happen. I push myself off, somebody's videoing, right? Most dumb stuff happens now when somebody's videoing us trying to do something. And I'm gonna fall down, and you, can you imagine me falling down, smacking my head and hitting my elbow, and I get up, everybody stops. You, you know that sound where everybody goes, ooh, like the whole park? Like, ah, oh, that had to hurt. Can you imagine me doing that? I get up, I'm holding my arm, like, oh, that was stupid, my arm's killing me. I, I think I go to urgent care, man. Some take me to ER, I gotta get this looked at. So we jump in a car, we drive down to the urgent care, wherever we're going. The doctor gives me an x-ray, and I'm out there kind of cradling my arm. She comes out, or he comes out, and says, uh, hey, uh, Mr. England, got some bad news. Looks like you've completely fractured your arm. We're going to have to put you in a cast. Okay, here's what I would say next. Thank you, doctor. Um, where do I go to get the cast put on? What's the next step? What, room, what hallway, what room, what doctor do I need to see? Uh, can we get this done? I'd like, I'd like something for the pain, and I'd like something to help it heal, right? And, and uh, I'd like to be home by supper. Let's go get this done. Let's get a cast on it. I'm going to sell my skateboard back, and I'm going to get my arm healed. But imagine if the scenario is different, and the doctor comes out and says, hey, Mr. England, you better have a seat. As a result of some of the tests that we ran, you might notice that we, we ran, uh, we did an x-ray, then we did some blood work, we did a couple tests. You may not have understood what all those were, but we're, we saw something that was an abnormality. We didn't understand, we wanted to look into it. What we found, Mr. England, is that you have an advanced stage of a terminal cancer, and there's no treatment for it. And while, while you've got a broken arm as well, you've got this, this cancer in your arm, and the only known prognosis, the only way that we know to deal with this, we've got to amputate your arm. Now, some of you have had the, the C word in your family. You know what that conversation's like. And at that moment, I'll be glad that I'm sitting down because this is heavy, isn't it? I've got a terminal cancer. It's going to kill me. If I want to live to be an old man, I've got to have my arm amputated. Now, watch this. My reply to that news is totally different, isn't it? You know what I'm not going to say? Thank you, doctor. I appreciate your time. Is the person who amputates arms on the clock today? Can you tell me what hallway to go down, what door to walk through? Do you like put a Sharpie X on it so they know which one to take off? Like, let's get this done by supper time. It's not how I respond, right? Why? Because that decision is going to have massive consequences for life. And you know what? I'd be willing to lose an arm if I had to in order to live to be an old man, but... You know what I would do? Same thing you'd do. I'd cry, probably. I'd call my family. I'd call my pastor. I'd go home. I'd write down the name of the cancer, and I'd Google it. 
And I, I try to find out who is the person that knows more about this cancer than anyone else in the world? Where's the expert live? Because I'm going to get a plane ticket. I'm going to take some time off work. I want a second opinion and a third opinion because I don't want to hear, whoops, I guess we didn't have to amputate that arm a week later, right? I don't want to hear that. I want to make sure that we're doing the right thing. Why? Because the consequences are so much higher. The stakes are really big compared to wearing a cast for a couple of weeks. And Christian, let me tell you, the stakes are incredibly high when we're talking about our faith. This is not just whether or not we're comfortable or not comfortable. This is not whether or not we're popular or not popular. This is not whether we're liked or not liked. This is eternity that we're talking about. And I believe there really is a heaven and there really is a hell. There really is sin and there really is only one remedy for it, and that's Jesus Christ. But the stakes are really high. So why would we have a good reason for the car that we buy or a good reason for the, 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 the uh, choices that we make on a political candidate, but then we're just not going to have any reason when it comes to what we believe? Reason demands it. Number two, people need it. People need us to have an answer when they ask why. I was on a flight a while ago. Uh, the Lord impressed on my heart. I needed to witness to the person sitting beside me, and I didn't. I was tired. It was a long day, and if you ever been that moment where you felt like you need to share your faith and you failed to do so, it was one of those moments for me. I'm not proud of it. It's what happened. And the plane started to taxi, and it was like I was thinking conversation to the Lord. Lord, we're taxiing. I can't stand up now. My Bible's up there in the carry-on or the, check, the, the overhead luggage. Maybe once we get in the air, I'll get up, get my Bible, and I'll witness to her then. It's just I wasn't in the spirit. And the young lady beside me reached into her bag, and she pulled out a Bible. Oh, I just got convicted, you know. So she opens the Bible and she starts reading it. In my mind, I'm thinking of the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that story in Acts uh, where uh, Peter goes and, and, and uh, not Peter, but goes and, and talks to him and says, hey, can I, do you understand what? So I was thinking about that story. So that's literally what I asked her. Do you understand what you're reading? And she looked up from her Bible and she said, how canst I lest some man show me? No, she didn't say that. That's what she said. <laughs> she did say no, though. Uh, she said, I, I'm a foreign exchange student. I'm on my way back to Seoul, and I have a layover in Los Angeles, and I stayed with a Christian family for the last nine months. We went to church every Sunday. Uh, I heard them pray. I saw them read their Bible. They gave me this copy of the Bible. I'm flying back to my family who's not saved. I'm, I'm not a Christian, and I don't understand why you are a Christian. I, and I said, well, I'm a Christian. I'd love to answer some questions if you have any. And she said, here's my biggest question that I can't figure out. Do you believe that this is actually the, that this Bible is, is actually God's word gives us the truth about God? I said, I believe with all my heart. And she asked, why? Why this book instead of any of the others? And you know what? I think that's a fair question. And I'm not great. I'm not a 10 out of 10 at answering that, but I want to get better at it. Because people need us to have an answer. People like my dad, who are an atheist, are influenced by this secular opinion of people that tell them there's no good reason to be a Christian. Sam Harris is somebody I jokingly call my favorite atheist. I don't know if it's okay to have a favorite atheist if you're an apologist, but Sam Harris said, it's time we admit that faith is nothing more than a license religious people give each other to keep believing when reasons fail. This is what people are being told. This is what people think. But the answer is actually the opposite. 
somebody in the last couple of years, last decade or so, that became a Christian. Cool story, I won't tell you the whole story, but Lee Strobel was an atheist, his wife got saved, and he decided he needed to show her how Christianity could be proven false. That's a really dangerous road to go down if you're an atheist. So he started studying the reasons why Christianity isn't true, and here's where he ended up. He's actually an apologist at a Baptist college today. Lee Strobel said, the light, in light of the avalanche of evidence that I found, it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to give in to Christianity. So as Christians, we've got to recognize that we have the truth. Reason demands that we do apologetics. People need us to do apologetics. And then number three, God demands it. Either any of these reasons are good reasons, but this one takes the cake. Hey, if God tells me this is a part of my Christian walk, I've got to take it seriously. And he does. Check out 1 Peter chapter number 3. And verse number 15, God commands this. 1 Peter 3.15, the Bible says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. You know what I've learned in life? I can't give away something I don't have. If you come up to me after, after service, you say, hey, hey, Toby, I, I need to write something down. I don't have a pen. Can I have a pen? Guess what? I have a pen and you're welcome to it. Come see me afterwards, I'll give you the pen, all right? You're welcome to it. Because if you come to me and say, hey, I need a pen, I got one, you can have it, okay? See me afterwards, it'd be fine. But if you come to me and say, hey, hey, Toby, I need to write something down, but it's gotta be a number two pencil. It's gotta be a pencil. Do you have a pencil? Can I have a pencil? Guess what? I can't give you a pencil because I don't have one. Okay, Christian, guess what? The Bible tells us to be ready to give an answer. The Bible tells us we need to be able to give a reason when somebody asks us for one. Let me, let me ask you, do you have a reason for what you believe? Real question, on a scale from 1 to 10, how good are you at giving a reason for what you believe? There's a little island in the Mediterranean called Crete. There were some church plants that were going on in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul decided that one of his protégés needed to stay behind and set things in order. And he wrote a letter to him that we have in the New Testament by the name of Titus, which was the young man's name. And in Titus chapter 1 and verse number 9, the Apostle Paul was telling him what kinds of people should be leading local congregations. And he says this, talking about elders, but I think as a mature Christian we could all aspire to this. Here's what he said. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, that's sound didache, sound teaching, sound truth, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Hey, this is scripture. This is what the Bible's saying. We need to be able to convince the gainsayers. Have you ever met a gainsayer? Think skeptic, atheist. Somebody hostile to your faith. You, you live by somebody that's a gainsayer, don't you? You have somebody in your family that's a gainsayer, don't you? Most of us do. And, and here's what he says. If you, if you want to be in leadership in the church, if you want to reach that level of maturity as a Christian, I think we all ought to be aiming for one of the marks of that is to be able to exhort, that takes courage, and to convince, that takes study. On a scale from 1 to 10, how good are you at convincing gainsayers? I know enough about Newport. I live just up in Lancaster. I know enough about Southern California. We've got a lot of gainsayers around here. They're not all in Sacramento, are they? <laughs> There's some of them right on our streets. There's some of them work where we work. 
the some of them that teach where, our, uh, where, where, where we go to school or our kids do or where we teach. They're all around us. And here's what I know. The Bible says we need to be humble. We need to be meek. We need to be Christ-like. We need to be convincing. We need to be convincing. So as a Christian, we need to study in order to be able to give a reason for those that ask. Finally, tonight we want to turn to what, what do we have to argue for the existence of God? How do we know there's a God? Question number three, how do we know that there is a God? Is there evidence? People say, as a Christian, okay, okay, I get it. We're supposed to have a reason. We're supposed to have an argument. We're supposed to have uh, evidence for this. Where do I go? We're going to end with this passage, but let's turn to it now. If you have your Bibles out, let's go to Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20. Romans 1 and verse number 20. Again, the Apostle Paul here is writing to a church he'd never visited. You probably know the story of Romans a little bit. He's writing to Rome, and he's he says, hey, I hope to come see you. Did he ever get there? Yeah, in chains. He got there, right? Lord sovereign. But here in verse number 20, he's talking about this evidence for God. In fact, let's start in verse number 18. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 18. Here's what the Bible says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Let's say hold the truth together. Ready? Let's say it. Hold the truth. What does that mean? It doesn't mean like a little kid holding a chick or a, a, a marshmallow or something like I'm holding. No, it, it actually is like to suppress. When we had kids uh, years ago, somebody gave us this little baby toy and they called it a jack-in-the-box. You ever have a jack-in-the-box in the house? There's this little box with a crank on the side and a lid on the top, and you turn the crank and it'd go. Remember that sound? And then right then the lid would pop up, and there's this little clown that would come popping out of there. Pop goes, and our kids always jumped. I don't know why we do that to children. It's just the coolest toy. And boom! They jump every time. So we do that. Well, over time, we, we do that jack-in-the-box, and it was just kind of a traditional thing, I guess. I don't know. And our kids figured out it's going to scare them. Have, how many of you are like that? You jump even though you know it's going to happen. My wife's like that. She knows it's going to happen, and she jumps. Like, you know, those, uh, those like, dough things you open up. She, like, she knows it's going to pop, and then it pops, she jumps. <laughs> I don't understand why you jump, but our, our kids were always like that. They always jumped. And they figured out they didn't want to be scared, but they liked the music, so they would do this. They would take their hand, and they'd put it on top of the jack-in-the-box. <laughs> Pretty smart, right? So here I am, I'm cranking it, and it's but there's no boom, there's no pop, there's nothing made them startle. Why? Because they were, here it is, they were holding the jack that was in the box. And that's the idea in Romans chapter number one, when the Bible says that they hold the truth. They're keeping the lid on it. It's like you got a snake in a jar and the lid doesn't snap. You got to hold it on. You're going to hold it on tight, right? Because you don't want to let it up. The Bible says that God gave everyone truth, but we withhold it. We suppress it. We keep the lid on it. We're holding. That's what unrighteous people do. It's what you and I have done at times. So the Bible says the wrath of God is revealed in that 
situation, verse number 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. What's manifest? It's revealed, right? That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shown it unto them. You ever have somebody say, hey, let me show you something. I saw something phenomenal on, on the news or something funny on social media. Have you ever seen this meme? Let me show it to you. you ever the, show, the Bible says God has shown this unto them. Unto unrighteous men. He's shown this to them. What is it that he's shown? Look at verse number 20. Romans chapter number 1. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. No one will stand before God in the judgment and accuse him of not giving sufficient truth. Because everyone has had a measure of truth. And those that repress that truth invite darkness, and those that respond to that truth, by God's grace, are able to uh, receive, see the, see the light and receive more truth. But here's what the Bible's saying, that God hath revealed the invisible things from the creation of the world. We call this general revelation. Everyone has had it. Through the creation of the world, these things are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Let me give you one application of verse number 20. See if this squares with the text. Is it true that the Bible says you do not need a Bible to know that God exists? The Bible says you don't need a Bible to know that God exists. I think we just read the verse. In fact, there's a couple other places as well. Uh, Psalm chapter number 19, the Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech. Night unto night showeth uh, knowledge. Uh, God has revealed himself all throughout creation. In fact, in the next chapter, we won't go, we'll go all through Romans, it's great. But in the next chapter, chapter number 2 of Romans, God has revealed himself through the conscience of man. Romans chapter number one, God's revealed himself in the creation of the world. Here, here's the takeaway. The Bible says God can be known to exist. Now, I'm not saying you can learn the gospel by looking at the stars. You can't. You need, you, you need to know the gospel from uh, special revelation. But you know that there is a God. So here's the question. How do we show? Okay. The Bible says you can know there's a God even if you don't have a Bible. Because there are people that have lived and died without a Bible, but they know that there's a God. How? Let me give you several quick arguments. Number one, argument for how we could show that there's a God without referring to Scripture. And then we go to Scripture to see what kind of God it is. Cosmological argument is the first of these four arguments. Cosmological argument comes from the word cosmos. This is an argument from the world. But it's really, it sounds like cause and effect. The cosmological argument states that there is a effect like the universe that has to have a cause. Every effect has a cause. You ever been asleep in the middle of the night and you heard a noise? That almost has never happened to me in my life. <laughs> I get sleep. You, you lay me on. If I fall asleep on railroad tracks, please pull me off because I won't wake up when the train comes. I am a hard sleeper. But... I married someone who hears things at night. 
And that's a good thing because sometimes there are things. She woke me up our first year of marriage and she said, hey, Toby, the doorbell rang. I looked at my watch. It was like 1.30 a.m. I was like, no, it didn't. I rolled back over to go to sleep. Ding dong. I totally missed the doorbell. Middle of the night. Walked down there. Neighbor wanted to tell me the garage door was open. So I closed the garage door. But she, hear, she hears things. If there's a crash in the kitchen, I might not hear it, but she's here. And guess what? If there's a big bang in the kitchen in the middle of the night, guess what? Somebody is going to go down there and investigate. I'm going to pull the covers over my head and say, go get them, Brandy. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. She's going to elbow me, and I'm going to get out. I'm going to go investigate. Why? Because I know if something was banging around in the kitchen, we got to have an explanation for that, right? That's not just okay. You don't just go back to sleep after that. Because I know this, that every effect has a cause. So here we're living in a universe, and the question is, what's the cause? For an atheist to look at you and say, well, I just don't believe that there is a cause. Or, eh, I, I, I just, eh, I don't know, just shrug their shoulders. We don't know. What a, what a breathtaking lack of curiosity to just shrug and say, we don't know. Hey, here's the reality. You have two options in your worldview. Either something has always existed or something began to exist out of nothing. Can we think of a third option? Me either. That's where you're left. Either something has always existed or something began to exist out of nothing, since we're pretty sure something exists now, right? The cosmological argument says if you go back far enough and keep asking the question, where did that come from? Where did that come from? Where did that come from? If you, if you ask a naturalist, an atheist, hey, where did you come from? Well, we came from grandma and grandpa. Okay, where did they come from? Well, they eventually, they came from monkeys. Okay, good. Now we're getting somewhere. Where did the monkeys come from? Well, they came from earlier primates. Okay, good. Where did the earlier primates come from? They came from uh, uh, microorganisms from a long time ago. Okay, where did they come from? They came from, uh, you know, soup of amino acids. Okay, okay, good. Where did they or just keep asking the question, eventually you're going to hit a, a dead end. Right? And the question isn't, will you reach a dead end? The question is, what will you dead end into? I've got a dead end when it comes to explaining where we came from. And you know his name is? God. And I believe that God is an adequate explanation for the existence of a universe. My question to you is, what other alternatives do you propose? Something had to cause the effect that we call this universe. J.P. Moreland said that the cosmological argument starts with the existence of the universe and reasons back to the existence of God is the best explanation of the universe. We've got to go quickly. Number one, the cosmological argument. Number two, the teleological argument. Let's say that together. Ready? Teleological. That just makes us sound smart when we say it, right? The teleological argument. This is an argument from design. This is what we're saying. When something looks designed, there was a designer. Now what you're looking at on the screen here is a design that I built several years ago with my kids. We took a part of an old alarm clock, took a rubber band from tracks uh, that our church let us pass out, a battery from a smoke detector, and a couple other things, and a bunch of Legos, and we made this little car. It was kind of cool. And you put the wires up, and this car drove across the floor. I know what all you guys are thinking. Oh, my word, this guy to work for Elon Musk. That looks just like a Tesla, right? <laughs> it looks nothing like a Tesla, and I'm not that much of an engineer. But we made it roll by poking up to a battery, and I thought it was kind of cool. Guess what? You, you look at this, and you can tell you didn't just put a whole bunch of Legos in a bag and shake it and shake it and shake it and stomp it a few times and shake it and toss it in the air, and this is what came out, right? 
You look at this, you can tell, well, the placement of the gears, and it's not jaw-dropping, but there's some design there. Okay, the world that we live in is full of design. The natural world is rife with it. So if we look at a car and we can say, yeah, these Legos look like they're designed, what do you do with the DNA? How do you explain the complexity of life that we have no explanation for? The only known source of information is intelligence. And ladies and gentlemen, there's a whole lot of information in every strand of double helix in every cell in your body. And every plant and every animal in the entire universe, where did that come from? We're arguing that design points us back to a designer, the teleological argument. Number three, you've got the, the moral argument. In fact, I'm moving a little bit quicker than I need. Let me jump to the, uh, the Nature magazine. I love this. <laughs> Nature magazine. Uh, uh, couple years ago, which is a very secular magazine. I don't know if you have stacks of Nature Magazine in the back, probably not <laughs> Baptist Church. Nature Magazine, uh, edited by Philip Ball, really was addressing some of these questions, and I think it's maybe a slide or two ahead yet. And he said in this edition, our universe is so unlikely, we must be missing something. Something is eluding <laughs> our tests. He, he, here's what, here's Here's the very uncomfortable position of scientists that don't believe in God. It's, it's getting kind of, water's getting kind of hot. Here, here's what's happening. The more we learn, the better design the universe has been revealed to be, the more implausible it has become. In fact, one apologist called the world that we live in a haunted universe. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever thought you were the only one home? Like you got home early, got off of work early, or the kids weren't supposed to be home from school, the spouse was working, you let yourself in. Maybe you're gonna go find some chocolate in the pantry or something, I mean, but, but nobody's supposed to be home, you're there alone. Have you ever had that feeling that you thought somebody was watching you? Have you ever had that? Or you heard something, move? You know that feeling where all of a sudden your hair stands up on the back of your neck? Hello? reaching for a knife to grab in the kitchen or something, right? You ever had that moment? Because all of a sudden you got this weird, uncomfortable feeling that I'm not alone. That's what it's like to be an atheistic scientist with this level of technology. It's kind of spooky. <laughs> Universe looks kind of haunted. It looks like someone has been monkeying with the knobs of physics because the design is off the charts. I could take a whole night and talk about the design in the universe, but you've got the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument. You ever, ever heard of C.S. Lewis? Most of you probably know C.S. Lewis was a skeptic that came to faith later in life. He attributes his salvation to this argument we're about to see, the moral argument. Do you realize that morality really doesn't make sense when there's no God? In fact, Voltaire, who was a terribly uh, hostile uh, French mathematician against the faith, Voltaire recognized that the moral argument is kind of tied to the Christian worldview. He said, there is no God, he was an atheist, but don't tell that to my servant lest he murder me at the night. What he realized is there's consequences to adopting a worldview without God. 
The moral argument tells us that there is a moral right and wrong. If God doesn't exist, objective values and duties do not exist. Objective values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. Somebody that says, hey, I don't think you should be that way as a Christian, or I don't think you should judge someone's lifestyle, or I think that uh, this is right or this is wrong. Guess what? In order to say that there's right and wrong, you've got to have a basis for that. Atheists can have a sense of right and wrong. Romans 2 tells me that. God wrote it in their hearts. But it's because there's a God that they have a sense of right and wrong, of just and unjust. Because if there's no God, there's no right and wrong. And then finally tonight, number four, the Kalam argument. If I have 30 seconds with an atheist, this is often where I spend my time. Because while it doesn't get you all the way to the gospel, I say it puts a stone in their shoe. You ever put your shoes on, you have a little bit of pebble in there, and you didn't have a time right, right then to take it out? You ever, you ever try to get through a half hour when you got a pebble in your shoe, and that uncomfortable? Until you stop and get it out. Sometimes I don't get to see an atheist saved at the first conversation. But you know what I want to do? I've got to drop a pebble in their shoe. And a pebble could be some part of truth, some part of a biblical worldview that is true, and they know it's true, and they can't explain it away. And hopefully God will use that to bring them back to Christ. The Kalam argument is one of those. It is in three statements. Sorry for my argument there on the screen, but uh, it's, it's three different arguments, three different, called a syllogism in logic. No, number one premise, everything that begins to exist as a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. What's the conclusion? The universe has a cause. And guess what? Nothing can cause itself. So the cause of the universe had to be prior to the universe. The cause of the universe had to be outside of the universe. The cause of the universe had to be greater than the universe. The cause of the universe had to be uh, intentional about the universe. The cause of the universe sounds a whole lot like God. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Here's the cool thing about this. I actually tend to think the world wasn't, wasn't as old as some people think. And, and some of that, we get into Genesis, I think that comes out. But, but you know what? That's not even a part of this. You talk to somebody and they say, oh, I don't need to explain the universe. I believe in the Big Bang. What? No, you have a lot to explain if you believe in the Big Bang. A whole lot to explain. How does nothing explode into something and now here we are? Let's talk about that, right? Because if you believe in the Big Bang, that's okay. Let's start the conversation there. You believe in the Big Bang. Let's say I did too. I don't necessarily, but let's say I did too. I still think you can point back to God because that's what scientists agree on today. The universe began to exist. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Therefore, the universe has a cause. What could cause a universe like we live in? Well, the answer, of course, Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20. The invisible things of God are clearly seen from the creation of the world, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I know I'm jumping all over, Ryan. You've been such a help. Let's back up one slide. I'll close with this slide from J. Warner Wallace. Another atheist, actually detective here in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, who came to Christ late in life after years of atheism. And J. Warner Wallace, a converted atheist who now is an apologist and has written several books, Cold Case Christianity being the most common, popular, said, I'm not a Christian because it works for me. I had a life prior to Christianity that seemed to be working fine. My life as a Christian hasn't always been easy. I'm a Christian because it's true. 
I'm a Christian because I want to live in a way that reflects the truth. I'm a Christian because my high regard for truth leaves me no alternative. Christian, may we tonight be established in our faith. Hey, if you have doubts, it's okay. God's bigger than your doubts. The truth is bigger than your doubts. The truth is more important than your belief. I want to align my belief with that, with that which is true, and that which is true is the God of creation and the God of Scripture. And the evidence for that continues to mount. It's a wonderful day to be a Christian. I know there's hostility. I know there's obstacles. It's a wonderful day to be a Christian. Because God has said, hey, I have, I have, through the invisible things, the invisible things of me can be clearly seen through creation. And the evidence for that is mounting more and more. And the need for the message that we have is increasing every day. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.